growing up, I didn't have any connection to our traditional customs because it was held up as two options. You either are Kikuyu and you don't have anything to do with Christianity or you are a Christian and you don't have anything to do with Kikuyu culture. And that's a constant tension even today um, in Kenya, but then more broadly in Africa of how do I be an African and a Christian when for so long we were told that you can't have both. This is Out of the Margins podcast. The podcast space, especially in the Christian world, is saturated by Western voices. But if we want a diversity of thought to face the future together, we need to step back and hear voices from out of the margins. Here, we will be offering insights from experiences and perspectives from the majority world. My name is Edgar. And I'm Simon. And on each episode, we will be bringing to you our conversations with pastors, leaders, and scholars from the majority world. This podcast is brought to you by Young Langham Australia. Now, in this episode, we will talk about contextualization. Contextualization is about making the message of the gospel relevant to a particular context. Now, the reason why this is important is because we want to hear from voices from the majority world, voices that reflect a different perspective. So, talking about contextualization in this episode highlights why understanding the context is so important when presenting the gospel. Now, in this episode, we will be chatting with Crystal, Kamwende, and Joseph. Crystal is from East Asia. Kamwende is from Kenya, and Joseph is from Uganda. And we will be hearing about how the gospel has taken shape in these different contexts. So let's just go ahead and listen to the conversation. So welcome. And can you guys just introduce yourself, like just short introduction, like your name, your background, um, yeah. Crystal? Yeah, so I am Crystal, I am from Asia, but I'm now doing my PhD study in Australia. Awesome. I am Kamwende and I am from Kenya and I am currently serving as an associate pastor in Australia and married to a Mexican. <laughs> I'm, I'm the guy. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm Joseph. I am from Kampala, Uganda, and I'm doing my PhD in New Testament studies at Ridley College here in Melbourne. Awesome. Like I said, we're talking about contextualization, and I like this definition by Vian Cato. He defines contextualization as making concepts or ideas relevant in a given situation. So in this case, we're talking about uh, the church. How do we communicate the gospel? How do we make sure that it's contextualized uh, properly? So to start with, can you guys share a little bit of experience, experience you might have had a funny experience of a cross-cultural moment? <laughs> yeah, a funny experience of a cross-cultural moment. Um, 
I would have to speak about tea. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, so one thing that struck me um, when I had my Master of Divinity in the US um, and also my time here in Melbourne is the fact that, well, Australians and Americans love taking a lot of water in little milk um, <laughs> or the other way around, a little milk in a lot of water and in Uganda, we actually have it the other way around. We mm. we have a lot of milk and little water. And so when you're ordering for tea in Kampala, they will ask you, do you need dry tea? Do you need milk tea? Do you need African tea? Now, the difference between milk tea and African tea is African tea has all the spices mm. uh, mixed. Mm. And um, milk tea is just milk. And dry tea is just water with tea leaves. <laughs> <laughs> and so um just just getting to notice that um people elsewhere in the west do get a lot of water and just put in a little bit of milk was quite quite funny i never understood why yeah. <laughs> that's very surprising because for me it was the first time i in my life since I came to Australia and people asked me, do you want milk in your tea? Because growing up, we only have tea leaves and water. Yeah. Yeah, in, in Uganda, that would be dry. And, yeah. it, and in, some spa- in some places, they might not even ask you to pay if you order for that. <laughs> like, it's, it's, like, like yeah, it's, it's just not worth yeah. it. Well, yeah, for me, tea is a constant, a constant issue in Australia. Every time they ask me, do you want tea? I'm like, oh gosh. Because either I have to explain how to make tea that I'll actually drink or I just have to like accept the tea that they give me and then not drink it because I, I can't. Yeah. And so, and, and then the sugar aspect is the one. You know, I remember coming here and I was asking, oh, can I, uh, can I have some sugar with my tea? Yeah. And they'd be like, oh, um, okay. And you, and they go to the kitchen and you hear them rummaging in their in their cupboard trying to look for sugar and like oh sorry we only we only have brown sugar is that okay I'm like what do you mean why isn't there sugar on the table for the tea and then there's a lot of judgment if you put yeah. anything more than half a teaspoon yeah. the sugar shaming oh my goodness so they've shamed me down to about a teaspoon but yeah uh, no I, I I never take less than a teaspoon yeah um, there you yeah. go yeah. <laughs> well. Yeah, very interesting conversation about tea. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> so since we're talking about contextualization, can you guys share an example of contextualization done well or not done well so that we know what we are talking about here? Mm. Crystal, how about you go first with the good one? <laughs> yeah, so uh, maybe a bad one, actually. Uh, it's food-related as well. Um, I do love hot pot and I love blood jelly. Have you had blood jelly before? What is that? Uh, <laughs> it's like uh, blood sausage? sausage? No, not sausage. Really but blood jelly, square shape. You put in hot pot. Anyway, uh. try it. So I do love... Wait, is it just... It's literally blood? Blood, yes. Yes. Oh boy. Just purely okay. blood, but... <laughs> in jelly form yeah okay (laughs) and we put it in hot pot i love it but interestingly um most or some some mainland chinese christians they actually don't eat blood jelly Mm. because they think it's it's not holy 
Mm-hmm. Um, so I remember I went out having hot pot with some Chinese Christians, and I ordered blood jelly, and I enjoyed my blood jelly so much that they started to doubt whether I'm actually a Christian. Wow. <laughs> There you, go. There you go. I think I did contextualization very bad. Yeah, you didn't recognize the, the cultural taboos. Totally lost my credibility. Wow. Yeah. Wow. There you go. Um, well, the example that I have is not from my own life, but from my family history. So my grandmother tells the story, and the interesting thing is that she tells it with a lot of pride. And she tells it of my great-grandmother. And how when she was young, so when the missionaries came to Kenya, what they did mostly was set up mission stations. And those mission stations were the the operation base of the missionaries and where people would go if they wanted to become Christians. So my great-grandmother decided that she wants to become a Christian. But it's important to recognize that in that time, Christian, the word Christian was translated essentially to a red one, like someone who could read. And so to become a Christian was very strongly associated with being able to read. It was someone who could learn how to, the magic of words on paper is what they called it. Um, And so she left her home, she left her people, and she went to the mission station. And the first thing that they did uh, when you arrived at the mission station, as a woman, if you're a man, you're allowed to enter and leave, but as a woman, you had to stay. They took off all of your skins, so your traditional clothes that you were wearing, and they sewed up your ears, because as Kikuyu women, we used to have the elongated ears as one of our customs, and they shaved off all your hair. And then they gave you Christian, they gave you Western clothing, and they started teaching you how to read and basically how to live your life now on the mission station as a person who has now come into the Western culture. And it's, my grandmother says it with a lot of pride because that was a huge thing for my great grandmother to do. And that meant that my family has now been Christian for many generations. But it also meant that the second she stepped into that, she mm. said goodbye to her religions, to her traditions, mm. to her culture, to mm. her family. She mm. couldn't just go back and visit them, and she had to leave behind that. And that means that for me, growing up, I didn't have any connection to our traditional customs because it was held up as two options. You either are kikuyu, and you don't have anything to do with Christianity, or you are a Christian and you don't Mm. have anything anything to do with Kikuyu culture. And that's a constant tension even today um, in Kenya, but then more broadly in Africa of how do I be an African and a Christian when for so long we were told that you can't have both. Yeah. And uh, Joseph, before, just before you share your example, can you talk about that idea of identity, your African identity? Do you feel sometimes that that is a, it's kind of, um, fight your Christian identity? Yeah, um, I usually call it a spiritual schizophrenia, in a sense. (laughs) So in your mind, you are raised as a Westerner, in a way, Mm-hmm. Uh, but your heart screams, I'm African. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that ties into the example that I would, I would share. There are quite a number that I could. But one of those being baptism. I do not know the origin or the genesis of the idea that when you are baptized, 
either into you know an anglican church or roman catholic church you necessarily have to obtain an english name and so most of of us including me actually i got my english name when i was baptized and now it might not have been intentional but the message it communicates to many is that to become a christian is to actually become a westerner to become a briton or to become a european in that sense and so it was quite a shock when we did not give english names to our two boys um both our relatives and friends were asking and these boys uh, are they not christians um <laughs> like yeah well of course we will see how they decide but what we will, we will not do is to give them english names mm-hmm. because part of what needs to be done is to remove the misconception that to be a christian has anything to do with being western or being european or being um english in that sense so that's that's one example uh, and so what that then means is as she mentioned your attire how you sort of um dress how you look mm. um your expressions if you are christian they tend to be mm. sort of and so the work that has to be done in terms of recognizing that actually god created all cultures mm. or people groups or ethnicities or ethne if i might use that yeah. language he created them and in their un- unique distinctiveness of course redeemed in a sense but in their diversity they communicate a way richer and more beautiful picture and understanding of who god is and what yeah. he has made us to be that's as much work again the work of contextualization that i suspect we will talk about. Yeah. Now thank you for that. That's great. Uh, that's a great example. So now talking about your specific context, what what challenges you guys see in your context? Um like can I start with you Joseph again with your ministry in in Uganda? Can you talk about that a little bit and what what are the challenges in terms of contextualization? So there are quite a number of course one being that we we have a people who are still trying to understand their identity in the sense of of course they've from childhood they are trained in a different language not in their heart language and mm-hmm. so whether it's science social studies or economics or any mathematics and all that their learning is in english right from childhood but they are africans and there is a need for them to actually be able to be trained and taught to appreciate their context their language their culture and all that mm. there is that aspect but there is also the aspect that as we try to think about that there is modernization there is mm. internet there is all these changes that are happening that make it probably make the idea of identity formation probably more challenging mm. and difficult thirdly the idea of the knowledge wealth that um that retells our african story is well of course that w- tended to be stored in terms of stories and tales and mm. um you know those sort of conversations we have around fireplaces but with the older generation dying out um the need to document that becomes quite more important and yet the resources or uh the willingness uh, to do that is may not be as as mm. prevalent as mm. 
as possible. So those might be just three uh, issues or mm. challenges that that have to be. And and this is a resource intensive, uh, you know, endeavor. And if I mean in a context like Uganda where I am, the majority would be looking for food to eat. They would be looking for uh, a house to stay in. They might be. They have existential necessities that may not allow them even if they wanted to actually embark on the whole research project mm. where they can be able to preserve and document these sort of stories mm. and so much and yeah. so the need for the resourcing uh, the training and the desire to actually ha- have the african story told and i suspect as we sh- you know share the gospel as we minister we have quite a role to to play in that as the church in yeah. Uganda the church in Africa such as yeah. well. Mm. Mm. Um well my context is difficult because it's um there's several. So I'm <laughs> from the Kenyan context born and raised there but then did my studies in Australia and now I'm ministering in Australia and then I might Edgar and so we are going to be moving to Mexico in the near future. And Yes, so it's a bit complicated when I think about what are the challenges of my context because yeah. there's a few of them. <laughs> it's a court of many colors. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but I'll talk about the Australian one because that's the most relevant for my current situation. And as a pastor in Australia, I think one of the big questions of contextualization is how to break through to a people whose worldview is essentially secular and who do not have really much of an understanding of the spirituality of the world. So because I'm Kenyan, I have a, a different worldview. I mean, mm. yeah, it's it's different and so I feel like I I get to see the blind spots in Australian society mm. uh, more clearly because I'm from I'm coming from an outsider mm-hmm. and that's one of them that is hardened. And even like in pastoral conversations and in um Yeah, in preaching and teaching, that's something that I'm often trying to emphasize mm. because it's very lacking in yeah. the Australian worldview and mm-hmm. therefore as a call of discipleship, then that's something that Australian Christians I think really need to grow in understanding this is the world is spiritual, not just yeah. physical, yeah. and that will affect your everyday life. Mm-hmm. Um but at the same time, I feel like I am challenged by Australian society as well. So one of the things I was saying before was that one thing that you will always hear about um Australians going to Kenya or just to Africa in general they'll come back talking about the poor people and the the beautiful animals. Always those are the two things they were like yeah. oh what's stuck out to you oh the people are so poor oh there's so much poverty oh my goodness and then we saw this person and they were a beggar and then we saw that person and then this da, 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 da. and i get really irritated by that um because it's you know it's it's building on the the preconceptions that people already have of africa mm-hmm. um that people wise there's not much to see but nature wise it's great <laughs> Yeah. As if the the people are just always struggling and there's nothing beautiful about us. Mm. Um and so I would primarily be irritated by that and I think it also speaks to the shelteredness of western context of they just have very little understanding of abject poverty and so they're very shocked by it when they see it. 
But I've been feeling, especially recently, that God's been challenging me in that um, reaction of mm. irritation that I have. Because growing up in Kenya, you are surrounded by poverty, abject poverty. You see like every three meters or something when you're in the CBD of Nairobi, you will find a beggar of some kind. You'll find a person who was mutilated in some way. You'll find very confronting things just walking along the street. But I wouldn't find them confronting because you see it every day. And because you have to have a certain practicality that says, I can't stop and help every single person in need that I find. Yeah. I also need to move it with my life and be able to do things. I need to find ways to help people, but I can't just help everyone. Um, and so when the Australian comes back and is talking about all that poverty, I think it has been, rather than irritating me so much, it's been confronting me in saying, look, they are sheltered, but because of that shelteredness, there is a softness of heart that they actually mm -hmm. have to the poverty that they see. Mm -hmm. And that is something that is more in tune with the heart of God than my hard-heartedness, essentially, towards the poverty that I've experienced, or, or just the numbness, whatever you want to call it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that confronts me in thinking about my original context and the way in which Kenyans, affluent Kenyans, have to or just choose to ignore poverty to some extent or not engage with it as much and not be impacted by it as much. Whereas the Australian comes back and it's like, oh, that was really, that's really bad. It's bad that people live like that. That's something that grieves God. And we need to be grieved by God by that um, mm -hmm. just as much so yeah mm. yeah yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah so my ministry context is uh, I'm training Asian pastors for ministry and I can see that they have um, they struggle to reach out to the younger generation so the second generation Asians in Australia um, and I can see that on the one hand, they are like what Joseph just mentioned. Um, they struggle to keep their traditions, to pass down their traditions. They, they are doing church in a certain way, and they want their second generation to keep their church traditions. Mm -hmm. um, this is, on the one hand, one struggle. On the other hand, they struggle to reach out to the second generation because the second generation grew up in Australia. They have their own unique culture and the pastors after so many years living in Australia they still don't understand the second generation culture very well and it relates to what Kumande just mentioned about blind spot because the second generation sees some blind spot that the first generation didn't yeah. see mm -hmm. so one example is um, all the pastors, all the Asian pastors, have no one to uh, step up and to to do the to do the pastoral workload, and the reason is I've talked to some second generation Asians. So this my so my ministry context is I train up Asian pastors, but my my personal church life is I go to a second generation um, Asian church mm -hmm. and so I asked some people from church their their father is a pastor a minister and I asked them why they don't want to go into ministry and a lot of them said because 
my church treated my father very badly. Mm. My father works 60 to 70 hours a week. I don't want that. But the first generation Asian pastors still see uh, burnout as a badge of honor. We as ministers, we are to sacrifice for the Lord. So we have to work hard. But the second generation thinks it's not sustainable. I don't Mm. want to be like my father. So I don't want to go into ministry. Mm. There's always a cultural gap and generational gap Mm. and how um, and I guess the Chinese, it challenges the Asian pastors to really think about why they do church in a particular way. Is it a cultural thing or is it a theological thing? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Talking about that, that gap because of different contexts, different uh, generations, creates uh, makes it more challenging to be able to connect. Mm. With, with certain uh, groups of people, and that's that's con- what contextualization is about, right? To connect, mm-hmm. to for something for a message to be familiar. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about the fact that all of us here have a study in a Bible college in a Western context. Mm-hmm. So, how do you think that that has uh, affected you? Whether it has it blinds you or it helps you when doing ministry in your own context? Yeah, um, it's, I suspect it's, it has its own positives and its own challenges, uh, I think. So one of the positives is the fact that just taping out, for example, of my Ugandan um, context helped me view the church on a, a broader, wider, if I might say, universal or Catholic sort of like aspect. The fact that God's church is bigger than what I experience in Uganda. Mm. It's bigger than what I experience in Kampala. And just having that, experiencing the body of Christ in the U.S., for example, in New England, um, was quite a beautiful picture. I think it's G.K. Chesterton in his book, Everlasting Man, who mentions the idea that the second best thing to happen to any boy or any uh, child is, so the first best is to be at home, but the second best is to move away from home so Mm -hmm. that they can see their home in a different perspective in, in contrast to the landscape where it is built. And I think there is that sense of the zooming in into your culture, but which is quite helped by the zooming out of your culture uh, to be able to actually relate your own home to the broader mm-hmm. terrain uh, and, and geography and people groups, so to speak. So that's one advantage. The other that I was sharing at one um, missions, uh, well, not missions, and one of our research conference uh, and seminar was as I was reading the, uh, we were reading. I was reading the autobiography of Jim, of um, Thomas C. Oden, and so Thomas Oden wrote a book, "How Africa Shaped um, the Christian Mind," and it's a book that I read in my first semester, I think, if I remember correctly, when I was starting my Master of Divinity at Gordon Conwell. I had never known the riches of African Christianity before I went to Gordon Conwell. Yes, of course, I had had the name Augustine. I had had, I had read um, Athanasius on the Incarnation, but I hadn't read those two works as works of an African church father. Mm-hmm. I had read them just as works of a 
you know, uh, church father generally. Yeah. But the case that Odin makes for the riches and the heritage of the African of African Christianity was profound. But I realized that I got to encounter that that book and David uh, David E. Wilhite. He's at Baylor. Um, ancient African Christianity. Those two works made me appreciate the work of God on the African continent. Mm. Okay. And I don't think I would have done that if I had just stayed in my context. Now, the challenge is, or at least one of the challenges, was that as I was training in the Western world, as I was training at Gordon Conwell, that temptation was, well, to be well equipped for the American context. Because the professors that I interact with are basically, by and large, training people for their context. Mm-hmm. And, and so the temptation is to be well equipped and trained for an American context that I'm actually yeah. not that much helpful or useful yeah. for my Ugandan context. And so what I had to do, and I remember reading John S. Mbiti, John Samuel Mbiti, a Kenyan mm-hmm. <laughs> theologian <laughs> as well. Um, and he did mention that challenge that he gives an example of this gentleman or this person who goes outside Africa, trains theologically, he's great, um, his theological stand, you know, so he can reason many things, but he comes and he, fa- he comes back to Africa and there is this demon-possessed person. Mm-hmm. And you are put in a room with a demon-possessed person and you have no clue what to do. <laughs> 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 but in the African context, that's something you should be able to deal with or wrestle with because mm-hmm. you it's it's common you yeah. mm-hmm. it's not like they are strange yeah. um but as Kamwendo was mentioning in a sense in the western context that there is a sort of level of rationalism mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. tends to eliminate even right. though people might believe demons exist they might believe the angels exist yeah. they might but the, in the daily lives mm-hmm. they tend to remove these realities yeah. mm-hmm. now if when you train from when you train from the west if you're not careful yes. that would be the case so mm-hmm. when you go back home and you encounter a demon possessed right. person you will have no help you will be of no help to them and if you can't be of help to them you actually have lost an opportunity for ministry in Uganda yeah. And African context, and so being careful that you, even when you're trained, mm. you know, in the U.S., in the U.K., in Australia, yeah. you are not so much prepared for those sort of contexts mm. that you are rendered uh, probably not as useful or effective for your home context as you could have been. Mm. Mm. It makes me think of a essay that I wrote in one of my theology subjects. And it was a very broad topic the, um, the lecturer asked us to write. What is a, a Christian definition of identity? And I started doing research for that. And I read book after book after book. And they were all talking about how when the, with a Christian identity, your identity doesn't come from uh, your sexuality it doesn't come from your whatever it's not it doesn't come from within yourself even it comes from scripture and I was just like these are these are not the questions I'm asking like this is not impacting me mm. yeah. at all like my question of what it means for me to be an African woman what my ident- th- those are not the questions that I have because in a Western context the questions are you know do you this whole thing of look within, mm. da da da, and lots of the theologians were arguing against that, being like, no, our identity needs to come from Christ. But my question was like, was my 
from the plethora of identities that I understand myself as, because I don't look within. That's just yeah. not a Ken, Ken, Kenyan worldview. Mm. Yeah. Mm. It's a nonsensical concept. Um, you come, you, I know that I am a daughter. My yeah. identity is that I am a sister. My identity is that I am this woman's grandchild. My identity is those things. And my identity is that I'm a Christian. And so my questions were about how do I reconcile my identity as an African woman to my identity as a Christian? Yeah. And I couldn't find mm. any helpful answers in the authors that were the main ones on the top yeah. of the bibliographies. Yeah. Mm. And so then I had mm. to go looking for African authors and that's where it was like speaking to my soul. That was one of the most impassioned essays I've ever written <laughs> <laughs> because I was able to find people who were mm. answering the questions that I was asking. Yeah. Mm. And unless I had looked in, I had to look in different places to find mm. those answers mm -hmm. because the, the Western authors and theologians, they just weren't ask, answering those questions that yeah. would require yeah. the answers that I needed. And it was, yeah, in moments like that that I realized, oh, this, yeah, it's not sufficient um, yeah. to simply be directed to the main thinkers of current Western mm -hmm. theology yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. for my specific context and, yeah, for this context that I'm going to be going into. Yeah, well, it is great to go to another context, in this case to the Bible College. Yeah, a person needs to be aware of that um, not like your resources are not, are not diverse and not from the global church, but from a specific uh, group of people in Western context, of course. Yeah, mm. yeah, and I guess Commandant's exp uh, experience tells us the the work of Langham, why we are encouraging uh, scholars from the majority world mm. to write for the majority world because mm -hmm. we can't, sometimes we just can't rely on Western resources because yeah. the resources are produced in the Western context for yeah. Western mm. audience and sometimes it's just not applicable. And I guess it's easy to think of um, theological training is for ministry. And so yeah. it's easy to think, oh, I go to a Bible college, I get equipped for ministry. So I remember when I was considering Bible college, my pastor encouraged me to stay for training because I was just going to uh, be equipped for ministry in that context. But actually, one of the church leaders encouraged me to go overseas to broaden my worldview mm -hmm. um, because she believes that going to Bible college is more than just learning the Bible, getting head knowledge, knowing theology, but it's also to be challenged to think about how and why we do ministry and to get experience from other churches. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's yeah. why in the end, I came to Australia for my training. And um, I agree with Joseph's temptation. Uh, we, If we are trained in a Western context and the temptation is to just to learn the way how mm. the Western Westerners yeah. do church. Mm -hmm. But I guess I am very blessed. Yeah. Even when I was at the Bible college, we were encouraged to think about contextualization. Mm -hmm. And it was yeah. actually the first time ever I heard about the word contextualization <laughs> because yeah. I grew up in a monocultural society. Yeah. Yeah. We just do things in a particular way, just cater for one particular culture. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah so it really uh, challenged me to think about context Contextualization, and I guess Australia is just so multicultural. All the churches, even just monocultural churches in Australia, are forced to think about contextualization mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. our neighbors are from different backgrounds. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we, um, I myself at least, um, have been challenged to think about 
why we do church, why mm-hmm. we do evangelism in a certain way. Um, is it cultural or is it theological? Right. Yeah. Yeah, I have been asking this question a lot. Mm. Uh, you say that um, because Australia is a very multicultural um, place, but maybe some, some pastors are not aware of, of that because, yeah, they think, okay, yeah, the gospel is the gospel, so it speaks to everyone. Mm. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, if I could just comment on that, listening to Crystal, it made me think, a real, real, um, think of another aspect. The temptation is not just to think, oh yeah, I'm going to minister, I need, uh, I'm going to be equipped to minister in the Western context. But the temptation is also to think the Western way of doing things is the best way. Mm-hmm. And I think that is a very yeah. increasing, it, yeah, it's a subtle but quite prevalent um, mm. way that, of thinking that uh, you'll find in Western institutions. It's the 21st century, so no one's going to say that. But you look back in the 20th century, you look back on the 19th century, that was completely the, the thinking. Mm. Yeah. That was the understanding. The Western yeah. civilization is the best civilization, and hence colonialism, hence we can go and tell other people mm. how to do things mm. because we're yeah. the best. Um, yeah. And I think it needs to be recognized that that is mm. the legacy of yeah. Western institutions, and that understanding is still... Mm-hmm. It's still there in yeah. the air, subtly, I think, in lots of Western academic institutions. And so I think the temptation is to be influenced by that and then to go back to your own context yeah. and think, okay, here I am to tell you how to do things right because mm-hmm. the Westerners have told me and I am here to tell you. <laughs> yeah. um, and I think that is a danger that needs to be avoided because it's mm. essentially a, yeah. yeah, it's a colonial sort of very yeah. um, messed up mindset. Yeah, which is much built on, uh, I think, down social Darwinism. Yeah, exactly. That way. Yeah. Down's descent of morals. But back to the point that you, uh, the question that you do raise, the idea that, well, we just preach the gospel, right? Mm. <laughs> and... It is true that the gospel is universal. It's true that the gospel uh, is good news to everyone, every culture, every person, wherever they are. What I like saying often is that the gospel, at least as we have it, the truth as we have it in scripture is painted on the canvas of history and culture. Mm. So it's not existing in a Mm. vacuum per se, but actually... um, it's the eternal truth, but revealed mm. on the backdrop of a whole um, cloth, if mm. I might, or fabric, if I might put yeah. it that way, and that's mm. culture and history. Oh and God, that's good. The, <laughs> and and the, be- <laughs> the best thing to do as people, as, as ministers, as teachers, as, as Christians, to, is to be sure that we actually understand what that gospel is. Because most times we can confuse uh, the cultural expression of the gospel with the gospel itself. Mm. And so I can't remember who it was who gave this illustration uh, that uh, um, I think it was probably Greenland or a place where that is too cold uh, when, when they were told that <laughs> hell is hot. 
um it, you know it's fire and all that and yeah. this person was like I would love to go to hell <laughs> <laughs> because all, all they've known is this freezing coldness yeah. <laughs> and they, they, they just imagine this hot place how yeah. amazing and pleasing it could be <laughs> fire everywhere what a dream <laughs> <laughs> and so f- to such a person he, the contextualization would be thinking about how to communicate the idea of judgment mm. in that regard mm. in a way that it creates the fear that it should mm. rather than actually uh, repeating the same thing that you think well would work to yeah. um uh, you know uh, western or african even in many african contexts and thinking it will work for them and so the gospel is it's an eternal truth that is indeed catholic and it cuts across yeah. cultures and all that but it tends to be painted on a canvas mm. and it's good to discern that canvas rather than actually assume that the whole canvas and the picture that emerges are what the gospel is mm. yeah Yeah and I guess um for Bible colleges students whether they do it in their own context or those who are privileged to go overseas and do it yeah. in a different context as one thing is important to bear in mind is that Bible college training is never sufficient mm-hmm. um it's just it just gives you the way of thinking not just the knowledge yeah, and yeah. I guess we can't just copy and stay wherever we are we learn abc and we just have abc for the rest of mm-hmm. our lives and yeah. the pandemic really forces us to think actually mm. it's not enough like for example during the pandemic pastors around the world were struck were struggling to preach online because they were never taught to preach online at bible yeah. college <laughs> and um i guess it was just an example to tell us that we have to do contextualization constantly yeah. because yeah. the world is changing yeah. and what bible college training gives us is just a way of thinking yeah. um, a way to open our mind um and this is what john stott says um we have a god-given responsibility to infiltrate the world listening to the world's challenges but also bring our own challenge to the world by sharing the good news by word and deed so we share the good news by word and deed um mm. but the first step is to actually listen to the world yeah. so that we can respond to the world yeah. well i hope that you found this conversation quite insightful i certainly have so much to think about right now because of this conversation But one of the things that I really appreciated and and uh, is kind of my takeaway from this conversation is that how the idea of going out of your own context and being in a different context how how that helps you to reflect on your own uh, background and seeing your own blind spots and also seeing the blind spots of the context you find yourself in so I think that there's really value in that But I also wanted to ask Simon, Simon, for for you from your Australian perspective, what are your thoughts on this? I I I think I'm still digesting some of this stuff, but I think the first and most important thing is to realize that the western viewpoint isn't the blank canvas that we all too often think that it is. I think we seriously like secretly still think that we're a little bit better than the rest of the world. And I think I I I still have some of that as well to to think secretly 
that that the Western mindset is better. Uh, so, A, we take the Western mindset as the blank canvas. Either we say the Western mindset is just the start, the, the start of the viewpoint and everything else is a deviation, or we we secretly harbour the idea that we're better yeah. and we just don't want to voice it. Yeah. We, we've managed to get to the point where we're like, all right, so this is a, a socially uncomfortable thing for yeah. us to say, but secretly we think that. And it's like we need to, we need to think about that and repent of it. Yeah. 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 Thank you so much for listening. I have great news. Our conversation with Crystal, Camuende and Joseph is not over yet. Next episode... We will continue our conversation on contextualization and this time we will be talking about language and history and why they are so important when understanding uh, a context. So please make sure you listen to part two of this conversation. And please don't forget to share the episode with friends and leave us a review to support this podcast. See you next time. <laughs>